Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Nabil Ahmed, Director of Economic Justice with Oxfam America, who discusses Oxfam's recent report on rising global inequality and the group's call for a 5% tax on the world's super-rich. Andy Hens of the group Beyond Extreme Energy, who explains how the revocation of a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission policy resulted in the approval of projects that generate CO2 emissions equivalent to 76 coal plants. And Nancy Trevino of Alianza Americas, who examines the Biden administration's immigration policies and advocates for opening pathways to regular asylum claims and major reforms. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Since Myanmar's army overthrew the nation's democratically elected government in February 2021, arms manufacturers and tech companies from 13 Western nations have supplied weapons and military technology to the junta, which are then being used to commit human rights atrocities. Over the last two years, the junta has killed nearly 2,800 pro-democracy activists, with more than 17,000 others injured. Pro-democracy government officials, including ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi, remain in prison. The secret supply chain to Myanmar's state-run defense industries was exposed in a report by the Special Advisory Council on Myanmar. The report, compiled from leaked documents, revealed companies from the U.S., France, Germany, Ukraine, Russia, and Japan have supplied spare parts and critical military technology to the junta. Human rights activists complain of the hypocrisy of Western nations who reject appeals by Myanmar's pro-democracy forces that are requesting weapons for self-defense while turning a blind eye to their own companies directly and indirectly arming the dictatorship. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in a case January 10th that could roll back workers' right to strike. The case... Glacier Northwest v. International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local 174, was filed after a short strike in Seattle. There, drivers returned concrete mixing trucks with wet cement to the company's yard after the strike was called. They returned the mixers in a manner so the cement could be salvaged, but the company failed to remove the cement and then had to break it up and dispose of it. The company, Glacier Northwest, filed a tort claim against Teamster Local 174 and sought damages for the hardened cement. As the lawsuit was heard in several state courts, the company hired politically connected right-wing lawyers with ties to the Trump White House. Even though the Washington State Supreme Court unanimously dismissed the case on the grounds that it lacked jurisdiction, saying that the proper forum for resolution was through the National Labor Relations Board, Glacier Northwest got a hearing before the U.S. Supreme Court, whose conservative majority has previously gutted labor protections. Glacier Northwest argued before the Supreme Court that it should be granted an exception to the National Labor Relations Act, since it suffered economic harm during the strike. 
If the right-wing justices on the court rule for the cement company, it will be a major blow to workers' right to strike, allowing employers to shop damage claims to sympathetic state courts rather than following the National Labor Relations Act protocol. Such a decision would force unions to rethink calling a strike with the looming threat of court-imposed financial penalties. During the COVID pandemic, transit systems continued to run, providing a reliable way for essential and low-income workers to get to their jobs. The suspension of fares on many local systems to protect bus drivers popularized the idea that transit should be free, similar to the way public libraries operate, but eliminating fares requires a massive rethink of transit funding. There are only about 30 fare-free systems nationwide, according to the latest data. But as federal COVID subsidies run out, many cities are pessimistic about securing any new congressional funding for public transit. For instance, the Washington, D.C. transit system lost $40 million in revenue in 2022 and has imposed new fines on fare beaters. New York City hired private security guards to patrol fare beater hotspots. Enforcement often targets communities of color as race and income inequality intersect with a level of affordability of public transit fares. New York City offers a 50% discount on subway and selected bus fares, but requires applicants to provide income verification. The immediate challenge before transit leaders is to decide what they can reasonably accomplish on the social justice front through limited fare policy tools and what they must do to ensure their system's viability. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the world's wealthy corporate and political elite gathered at Davos, Switzerland's ski resort for the annual World Economic Forum that ended January 20th, the social justice group Oxfam released their new report titled Survival of the Richest, How We Must Tax the Super-Rich Now to Fight Inequality. The report found that the world's richest 1% grabbed nearly two-thirds of all new wealth worth some $42 trillion dollars created since 2020, almost twice as much money as the bottom 99% of the world's population. According to statistics released by the World Bank, extreme poverty increased in 2020 for the first time in 25 years, at the same time extreme wealth dramatically rose since the onset of the COVID pandemic. During the pandemic, and record-setting inflation price increases since 2020, $26 trillion dollars or 63% of all new wealth, was captured by the richest 1%, while $16 trillion, only 37%, went to the rest of the world put together. Your reporter spoke with Nabil Ahmed, Director of Economic Justice with Oxfam America, who discusses the findings in Oxfam's Inequality Report, where the group found that an annual wealth tax of up to 5% on the world's multimillionaires and billionaires could raise $1.7 trillion annually, enough to lift 2 billion people out of poverty 
and fully fund the shortfalls on existing humanitarian appeals. So, Scott, we put out this report about inequality every single year. And you're right, we time it with the World Economic Forum that takes place um, in Davos, in the Swiss Alps, in Switzerland. It's really this kind of festival of wealth which sees very powerful business and government leaders come together, together with billionaires. Um, and we time our report about inequality with this moment. And our new data this year really shows an explosion of inequality. Let me give you some of the headlines. The world's richest 1% have grabbed nearly two-thirds of all the new wealth created since 2020. That's just a top 1%. And imagine, just to give you a sense of that, that means that they've grabbed twice as much money as the rest of the world that 99% of us put together. And that's an extraordinary headline because we know we've faced an inequality crisis for some years now. And they've outdone even that at the top. If you look at just the past decade, the 1% have grabbed half of all new wealth. And they've outdone even that. So we're saying this isn't normal. We're saying you know, the pandemic has created almost this new variant of billionaire wealth. And it feels like we're entering a new roaring 20s. And we're seeing that rise at the top just when so many folks here in the States, but right across the world, are being left, also being pushed behind. But really, what we have to keep on underlining, that none of this is inevitable. It comes down to the choices that we make, the kind of economic policies that we choose. This kind of extreme inequality is certainly not inevitable. Nabil, I did want to talk about Oxfam's uh, call for new policies. Please tell our audience why Oxfam is calling for a systemic and wide-ranging increase in taxation of the super-rich and the research on this proposal from the Fight Inequality Alliance and, and other groups. Sure, there are many solutions to address extreme inequality, from taking on monopoly power to boosting workers' rights. But let's be clear that a strategic precondition to getting us to a more equal society, one that truly invests in our children, is taxing the ultra-wealthy and is taxing corporates. We break it down into three key things that we need to do. The first is looking at the role of one-off taxes on the ultra-rich and on corporates, on their excess corporate profits. That's number one. But let me focus on number two and number three, because I think that's where we can be really strategic. The second one here is ensuring that we have permanent, much fairer tax system on income. So it's ensuring that the 1% are paying a higher top marginal income tax rate. This isn't teachers. This isn't the middle class. This isn't daycare workers. This is at the very top of society and ensuring that they're paying a tax rate which is higher. And it includes capital gains because that's how those folks at the top are able to make most of their income. And that is taxed at a lower rate than general income. So we're trying to say, let's address that. And the third piece here is taxing extreme wealth and putting in permanent proposals to do that. You know, looking at inheritance, looking at land, looking at a net wealth tax that we have proposals there that plow that money back into society. So number one, the one-off. Number two, the permanent income side of things. And number three, on the wealth side. Um, and we can structure these things in a way that's fair, that boosts innovation, that truly invests in the rest 
And look, we've done some illustrative examples here, just to give you one. A wealth tax of up to 5% on the world's multimillionaires and billionaires, that would raise about $1.7 trillion a year. Amongst other things, that would lift about 2 billion people out of poverty. And we use these examples to illustrate what's possible. But there's other folks as well who've shown just what's possible. And if we can give you one, that if we just did a one-off 40% tax, the capital gains that are unrealized, just of the U.S. billionaires, okay, at one time, 40%, they're all going to remain rich on the U.S. billionaires. That just itself would generate a trillion dollars. Imagine that what that would do for our society. Imagine how we could invest that in the proven inequality business from healthcare to childcare to innovation that truly benefits us all. You know, there are examples across the world, but there are also examples here in the U.S. that shows this isn't really the extreme thing to do, Scott. I think the extreme thing to do is to live in a society where so few have so much wealth and so much power at the expense of so many else. You know, 81 billionaires, by the way, Scott, own more wealth than the bottom half of humanity, nearly 4 billion people combined. That's the extreme thing for me. That was Nabil Ahmed, Director of Economic Justice with Oxfam America. Find a link to download a copy of Oxfam's Survival of the Richest Inequality Report by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. U.S. and global greenhouse gas emissions are still on the rise, as the U.N. and even historically fossil fuel-friendly organizations, like the International Energy Agency, are calling for no new fossil fuel infrastructure to be built. An urgent transition away from fossil fuels must be undertaken if the world is to have any hope of cutting emissions 50% by the year 2050 or risk massively destructive environmental impacts. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, is the U.S. body tasked with reviewing applications for interstate gas pipelines and related infrastructure like compressor stations and liquefied natural gas export terminals. Beyond Extreme Energy, or BXE, is a small nonviolent direct action group that over the past nine years has disrupted business as usual at FERC to draw attention to the agency's close ties to the fossil fuel industry and the fact that over the past 30 years, it's turned down only two permit applications while approving more than 400 other projects. More recently, BXE has developed a proposal to turn FERC into FREC, the Federal Renewable Energy Commission through congressional action, and has also researched the extent of emissions produced by FERC-approved projects. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Andy Hins, a member of BXE, who as an IT specialist for the federal government, worked 25 years at FERC. Here he discusses a policy that FERC commissioners adopted last year that considered the impact of greenhouse gas emissions on energy infrastructure project applications and the consequences when that policy was revoked. In February, FERC issued an interim policy, and they were going to start applying that policy. Then, there was no waiting, there was no roundtables, they were going to start using that interim policy. And in that interim policy, they were going to consider the impacts of the greenhouse gases, and both upstream and the combusted. If it was over a certain amount, they were going to require it to be remediated. And, you know, they were going to do various things. And that their interim policy also applied to projects that had already been permitted. So, in other words, 
the Mountain Valley Pipeline. If that interim policy had been left in place and the greenhouse gas analysis for the Mountain Valley Pipeline that they did turned out that it was just too damaging for public health, for public safety, then that permit would have been would have been revoked. The impact is that since Joe Manchin basically took control of FERC, took control of FERC's agenda and made them retract that interim policy, they've approved you know many, many projects. And so we wanted to know how much it was. And it's at least 76 coal plants. So that's like FERC just went and built 76 coal plants in the middle of a climate emergency. We're not supposed to be building any coal plants. We're supposed to be building solar and geothermal and wind. We can't keep building this fossil fuel infrastructure. It's going to, it is killing us. It's killing people now. The streams of moisture that streamed into California, that streamed across New York and, and killed people in Buffalo. So people are already dying because we have too much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. So it's not like, oh, a little bit more is okay. And this wasn't a little bit more. This was 70, 80 coal plants that FERC is saying, okay, let's keep burning. Let's just burn, baby, burn. It gets a little bit frustrating, the cognitive dissonance that we seem to have in our society. I can't believe that people are not storming the halls of government and telling them to stop. I mean, we're killing the planet. We are reducing our chances for survival. If we don't stop, we're not going to survive this. And we can't afford to keep building coal plants. To be clear, we're not really building coal plants. You said equivalent. So it's it's pretty much like frat gas, um, methane plants and, and related infrastructure, right? That That's the equivalent of what coal plants would be emitting. Yes, definitely. So yeah, so we calculated all of the methane, the frac gas that FERC has been approving, and the decatherms from that. Once you get to that number, then EPA publishes formulas that let you convert that to other measures that people understand. Because when you say 280 million tons of greenhouse gases, you know, what does that mean? So that's why it's 76 coal plants or a million coal cars. It's all the same amount of greenhouse gases. It's just different ways of visualizing or different references so that you can comprehend you know, the amount of it. And Joe Manchin, as the Senate chair of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee for Congress, is the one who has the power basically over FERC. And you said that you know he told FERC commissioners that they better not do what they were starting to do. There was an action on uh, January 19th at the FERC headquarters in Washington where Beyond Extreme Energy activists got together and were calling for three things, I think. So can you just outline what those three things were? And and full disclosure, um, I'm also a member of Beyond Extreme Energy, but I wasn't able to make it down to D.C. for this particular action. So just tell us what happened there. Yeah, so the first demand is that Congress needs to pass legislation to replace FERC with a Federal Renewable Energy Commission, FREC. That's something uh, that BXC has been advocating for since 2019. The second demand is that Senator Schumer and President Biden remove Joe Manchin as chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. And the third demand is that staff and employees at FERC must resist Manchin. It is these government workers we were speaking to directly the other day, telling them not to approve new permits or turn a blind eye to climate and environmental justice impacts. That was Andy Hins, an activist with the group Beyond Extreme Energy. Learn more about BXE's campaigns and research 
by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Amid the exponential rise in the number of migrants seeking asylum at the U.S. southern border in recent months, in early January, the Biden administration announced new immigration policies that limit asylum claims and expand the use of the Trump-era COVID ban known as Title 42, while also increasing the ways some migrants can apply for asylum in the U.S. without making the journey north. On December 27th last year, the Supreme Court allowed U.S. border officials to continue expelling migrants under Title 42, while the justices considered a petition by 19 Republican-led states to prevent President Biden from immediately ending the policy. Title 42 is now being used to expel 30,000 migrants from Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua each month, while allowing the same number of asylum seekers from those countries to apply to live and work in the U.S. for two years. Those accepted through the application process must have U.S.-based sponsors to support them, much as Venezuelans and Ukrainians are required to have for a separate Biden program. Your reporter spoke with Nancy Trevino, Associate Director for Network Power with the national coalition Alianza Americas. Here she examines the Biden administration's immigration policies while advocating for opening pathways for regular migration and asylum applications and addressing the root causes of migration to the U.S. Essentially what we're seeing is the border is people coming, um, seeking asylum due to various issues that are impacting their daily lives back home and then being forced to migrate, seeking better lives for them and for their families. People were severely impacted globally, but especially in Latin America um, by the COVID-19 pandemic and other social issues that are occurring in their countries of origin. People are facing poverty, people are facing um, the impacts of COVID-19, political instability, um, and the climate crisis, which are forcing them to to travel north. Um, And essentially what we're seeing at the border again is people seeking a better life and asking for asylum into the United States. When the administration came in, they did discuss something that we as a, as a network and as, as an organization that's nearly 20 years old has been um, talking about um, constantly, right? And, and that is to get to the root causes of migration. The administration tried to get some conversations going, including a visit by uh, Vice President Harris to Central America to try to come up with a plan and really get to, to addressing this. The congressional solutions that we have been advocating for legislatively have just really gone nowhere in the last couple of years. So there's gridlock in Congress. The executive is trying their best to try to navigate this landscape of just inefficiency and a lack of what we see building just something different and reimagining something different that will not only provide protections for undocumented people, millions of them here in the United States to contribute to our country every single day, but also address those who are coming seeking better lives. I did want to ask you, uh, Nancy, a bit about Title 42, because 
it seems that while the Biden administration has long been saying that it wants to get rid of Title 42, they also have been expanding the use of this policy, and they seem to only half-heartedly been trying to repeal its use. What's your perspective on Title 42 and where it's at right now? For us, it's ineffective. It should have never been used. Um, I think at this point, there's just lots of data to uh, make the point that we no longer need this policy in place to deter migrants from coming into the country due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Vaccines are available. The administration has proven that it can quickly create systems to integrate new migrants into the country, including Ukrainians who came to our borders um, and were given parole and given protections immediately. So in our perspective, it's ineffective and the administration should just discontinue using some elements of the policy to deter people from coming to the, to the country. What are the international obligations of the United States in terms of their treatment and processing of people who come to our border seeking asylum? We are signatories to some international treaties, are we not? Yes, we are. And it's um, international law that, that basically guarantees people who come seeking asylum to a fair process, right? And, and a process that allows them to make their case um, and have um, some type of legal representation or assistance to apply for asylum in the country. So the fact that um, all of these policies that were implemented prior to the Biden administration were essentially deterring the asylum process just proves that, you know, what we're seeing is ineffective and that the Biden administration just really needs to problem solve and implement better policy and, and, and continue to instead support people who are coming here seeking a better life as opposed to continuing to um, restrict asylum, essentially. For decades, Congress has failed to make any changes to immigration law. Is there any chance in your mind that this new divided Congress, certainly with the House in the hands of the Republicans and the Senate in the hands of Democrats, can there be any progress, you think, over the next couple of years? From our perspective, we don't think so. You know, we will keep advocating, we will keep organizing um, if any new proposals come up that will provide protections for undocumented people. Um, we are surely to support that. But we do think that part of the organizing and advocacy has to happen at the local and state level as well. So we'll be driving those fights through our member organizations. And we'll do our best to continue pushing um, champions um, who have been supporting our network and other um, immigrant rights groups from across the country to get any legislation passed in the next couple of years. That was Nancy Trevino, Associate Director for Network Power with the National Coalition Alianza Americas. Learn more about the urgent need for immigration reform in the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.com. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KMUD in Garberville, California, KODX in Seattle, Washington, Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.